0: Job chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, Job writes, Man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me to judgment with yourself? Who can bring a clean thing Out of an unclean, no one, since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. Look away from him that he may rest till like a hired man he finishes his day. For there is hope for a tree if it's cut down. Then it will sprout again and that its tender roots or shoots will not cease Though its root may grow old in the earth and its stump may die in the ground, yet at the scent of water it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. But man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last. And where is he? As water disappears from the sea and a river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down. And does not rise till the heavens are no more. They will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service I will wait till my change comes. You shall call, and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands, for now you number my steps. But do not watch over my sin. My transgression is sealed up in a bag, and you cover my iniquity. But as a mountain falls and crumbles away... And as a rock is moved from its place, as water wears away stones, and as torrents wash away the soil of the earth, so you destroy the hope of man. You prevail forever against him, and he passes on. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor, and he does not know it. They are brought low, and he does not perceive it. But his Flesh will be in pain over it, and his soul will mourn over it. In the past few chapters, Job has asserted his trust in the Lord. In chapter 12, he has also entertained not just trust, but hope in chapter 13. And now Job thinks about the great hope of life after death in chapter 14. Remember, the book of Job is Hebrew poetry. It's written in a poetic fashion, in an elegant and dramatic way. Because it's trying to invite you into exploring life's most perplexing questions. And this chapter begins with Job's comment on the fragile and, and temporal human condition. Life is brief. Man is vulnerable. We are in great need of God in verses 1 through 6. Job will speak of the certainty and then the finality of death in, in verses 7 through 13. And then Job holds out hope for a future life, yet there are these dogged demons of doubt that creep in, and he wonders whether or not any of this is true. And so it begins with the brevity of life. Look what it says in verse 1. Man who is born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. This is one of the most quoted passages in all of the book of Job. For some reason, poets, thinkers, writers... Love this verse because Job expresses in poetic language the brevity of our lives. Other Bible writers concern how quick our life comes and goes... David in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 15. And Solomon in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 27. And Isaiah chapter 40, verse 7. And James chapter 4, verse 14. You get this reoccurring message. You come, you go, you're here, you're gone. And you're never more aware of the brevity of life than the older you get. You know, it's one thing to remember... The 60s. But it's another thing to remember the 50s. And some of you might be able to reach all the way back into the 40s. But you begin to discover something rather quickly. And that is our life comes. You have children and then you have grandchildren. And pretty soon your hair turns shocking white. And so when it says, man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. The word trouble is an interesting word in the Hebrew language. In its noun form, it's derived from a word that means to tremble or to shake or to quake. And so when it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament, it speaks of an inner turmoil inside of your heart. That's the way it's used like in Second Samuel chapter 18 verse 33 and Isaiah chapter 14 verse 2. It's that kind of quivering, shaking, trembling. It speaks of anxiety and fear and worry. And so Job says in verse 2 he comes forth like a flower and fades away he flees like a shadow and does not continue. The Bible speaks of us like grass that springs up, a flower that fades away, and the picture of a shadow is you see the the sun rising in the sky and you watch the shadow fall, the rising and the setting of the sun, and pretty soon you realize it's gone flowers shadows grass smoke clouds they're all temporal and so in verse 3 it says and do you open your eyes on such a one in other words i'm here and gone so quickly god do you are you even aware that i'm here remember the writer in psalms is going to ask that very same question what is man that thou art mindful of him it, is God even aware of a human being because he comes and he goes so quickly? It's sort of like in our world if you look at a dragonfly or a moth or a butterfly and you consider how long it lives and you don't really contemplate or think or cogitate on the span of bugs and insects. He says, do you open your eyes and bring me to judgment with yourself? Are you even aware that I'm here? And are you aware that I am going to somehow give an account of my life? Now, I want you to begin to think about what Job is doing and what he's thinking about the real God who really exists, the creator God, the God who reveals himself He says, he's affirming the essential nature of human beings in the very next verse. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. In other words, he goes, and bring me to judgment with yourself. He's basically imagining himself standing before God. He's imagining himself inadequate, falling short. Just like the Bible says, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Just like the Bible says, when you consider your ways and you consider your circumstances, you consider your life, you consider your speech, you consider your actions, all that you've done, who can stand before God. And so he's affirming the essential nature of human beings as being impure and unclean. Theologians use a term to describe what Job is talking about they use the term depravity. Depravity is a word that tries to examine the reality that there is no righteousness, there's no purity, there's, no, there's nothing inside of a human being that would make them acceptable before God. And so Job asserts that human beings cannot be made clean And in one sense, he's correct. And in one sense, he's incorrect. When he asks the question, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Job says, no one. But there is one. It's God. God himself. The Lord God himself is capable of taking something that's broken and mending it. Of making something that's impure and making it pure. Of making something that's righteous or unrighteous, righteous. Job understands that there's something broken inside of us. There's something unclean inside of us. He understands that he's inherited a sinful condition from his parents. And that his parents inherited a sinful condition on down the line to Adam. Adam. Job will also begin to understand that human beings need a savior, that they need a mediator, that they need someone who can redeem them and purify them. And so Job says in verse 5, since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. Job is affirming that the true God of the heavens and the earth, the true God who occupies eternity, knows the first day that you're conceived, the first day that you're born, the first day that you live, the first week that you live, the first year that you live, the first decade that you live, the first, for some of you, Score. Maybe some of you will live a century, a hundred years. Even though only one in about 10,000 people make it to a hundred. God has fixed the number of our days. This is Job's way of saying, you cannot live one more day, really one more minute, than that which is God has ordained. Has God ordained every moment of every day of your life? The answer is yes. And so in verse 6, well, before I go to verse 6, let me just remind you of something. There are people who want to extend their life, and they're willing to pay almost any price to do so. But Job understands there's a beginning a middle and an end. And so in verse 6, when he says, look away from him that he may rest... Till like a hired man he finishes his day. He's speaking of himself. When he says look away from him. He's talking about mankind in general. But he's also I think talking about himself specifically. Job likens himself to a hired hand. And he begs God to just give me a few days of respite or rest before I die. Job wants his life to run its course. He wants to leave in peace. We might think of verse 6 this way. Have you ever heard someone say, can't you just leave me alone and let me die in peace? That's what he's saying. Can't you just leave me alone and let me die in peace? And so in verse 7, he speaks of the finality of death. Look what he says. For there is hope for a tree. If it is cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its tender shoots will not cease. Job likens life to a tree, but here's what else Job is saying. A tree has more hope than Job. The picture that he's giving is, you can cut down a tree. And if you cut down certain trees, is it possible that when you cut down a tree, if you add water to the tree, that a shoot of life is going to come up? There are some olive trees that live to be a thousand years old. I've seen them in Jerusalem, on the Mount of Olives. Trees, gnarled, trees that have grown. Some of you who have visited or even lived in California, you've maybe seen a giant sequoia or a giant redwood. They're they're majestic in their power. And so he says, look, there's more hope for a tree than for me. Job understands if you cut it down, its roots remain alive. The presence of water can awaken it again. He says in verse 10, but a man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last. And where is he? He says in verse 8, Though its root may grow old in the earth and its stump may die in the ground. Yet as the scent of water it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. Cut a tree down. It has at least the opportunity seemingly to stay alive. But Job says, but if a man dies in it's laid away. Indeed he breathes his last. And where is he? He contrasts and compares. He says, picture a human being. They draw their last breath. They're planted in the ground. But if you pour water, or if you're Irish, beer, on a grave, is that going to bring the person back to life? No. Job is saying something when he says, Indeed, he breathes his last, and where is he? people who die don't come back to life. Now again, even when he writes, indeed, he breathes his last and where is he? The verse takes on special meaning. If you've ever seen a person breathe their last, if you've been with A mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a grandmother, a grandfather. If you've been with someone you love and you're at their bedside and you see the labored breathing and their chest heaves and they inhale and exhale and they come to that moment where it is their last breath and you understand something profound has taken place. The person that you knew is no longer there. He asks the question, where did they go? It is the question that each and every person in each and every generation will ultimately ask themselves. What happens when you die? He says in verse 11, as water disappears from the sea and a river becomes parched and dries up, So man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. They will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. He likens a human being like the cycle of evaporation where the sun beats down on a lake and the water begins to evaporate like a river, like a dry gulch. He says that's the way human beings are. They lie down and they don't get up. He says, till the heavens are no more, they will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. In what sense? He is suggesting that according to what he's observed and what he has learned and what he has seen, dead people don't come back to life. Now this is interesting on so many different levels. The first level, of course, being... That a lot of people accuse the ancients of being stupid or weird or superstitious. Or willing to embrace any sort of fear or superstition that comes down the road. But I'm here to tell you that most people in the ancient world, even if they believed in life after death. They lived in a world where dead people don't come back. And they would live their lives or they would order religious rituals or they would perform certain rites in order to make sure that that doesn't happen. He says... Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. Now a little glimmer of hope takes place. Job says, God, will you hide me in the grave? In what sense? Will you please let me die? In what sense? So that your wrath would pass by. In what sense? Here's what he's basically saying. I want to die and I want to wake up in a world... Where there's no pain, where there's no sorrow, where there's no depression. I want to die, and I want to come back to life. Job seems to be speaking of a set time in the grave. It's his way of saying, look, I'm willing to die, and I'm willing to stay in the grave Until such time as you think it's okay for us to talk. (laughs) And then to bring me back to life. Look what the text says. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave. That you would conceal me until your wrath or anger is past, That you would appoint me a set time. Look what it says. And remember me. I want you to think about verse 13 and ask yourself the question, what does it mean to set and appoint time, and what does it mean to remember him? What if I'm I'm, going to suggest to you that what Job is hinting at, at least at this point, is a resurrection. In other words, that there's a time when he is going to come back to life, and when he says that you would remember me, Remember, that that implies that there's a thoughtful consideration. Perhaps at a later time. Now again, there's a lot of ways that you could think about the text. Is it another life? Is it the next life? That God will no longer be angry? He's dreaming about a life where God remembers him. Where God isn't angry with him. And where he is at peace with God. Now look at verse 14. If a man dies. Shall he live again? All the days of my hard service I will wait. Till my change comes. That's the million dollar question isn't it? Verse 14. If a man dies. Will he come back to life? If a woman dies, if a human being dies, we know in the New Testament it says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his soul? If a man dies, will he live again? Does this life cut off consciousness, terminate existence? Now, there's so much that I want to tell you about this verse, but we don't have a whole lot of time, so let's try and go through it quickly. Let's begin with a very simple question. How much faith do you think it took for Job to just simply ask that question? His children are gone. His business is gone. His health is gone. His friends are, for the most part, gone. Everything that he used to have, he no longer has. How much faith does it take to ask that question? In spite of everything that's happened, he's asking the question, if a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service I will wait till my change comes. The change from what? From death to life. Now, again, the Hindu will answer the question with reincarnation. If a man dies, shall he live again? Oh, you will live again in the form of birds, bees, flowers, trees, moon up above, and a thing called love. (laughs) The Bible doesn't teach reincarnation. The Bible teaches resurrection. Now, if if the Hindu says, well, maybe we can come back in another form, in another way. The philosophical naturalist or the atheist or the materialist hopes, not in another life, but in some sort of lasting contribution. William James wrote, the great use of life is to spend it for something that outlasts it. In other words, you can imagine for the atheist, for the materialist, for the Carl Sagans of the world who believe that this universe is all there is and all there ever was, that you are stardust, that an a star explodes, the heavier elements coalesce, they form planets, which forms carbon, and a drop of water, hydrogen and oxygen, somehow combine, electrical currents somehow create amino acids, amino acids which, which somehow build up into some sort of living, replicating organism, which begins to differentiate and has some sort of identity, and these multicellular organs become... Lower life forms and these lower life forms become higher life forms so that over a four and a half billion period, humanity rises and then dies, returning to carbon and molecules. And the earth crumbles and the star explodes and the cycle continues. For James, William James, there is no life after death. For so many people who deny the reality of God and they deny the reality of a life after death. They're going against something inside of them that God has placed inside of them. The Bible says that God has placed eternity in your hearts. You see, I'm going to suggest to you that the deep desire on the part of human beings to live forever isn't a desire of wishful thinking that's been placed there by Satan. The desire to live forever is something that has been placed inside of your hearts by God. Because God has created you and God has created you in in his own image. In what sense? In the sense that you can have friendship and relationship and you can communicate with God. It was Helen Keller who said, I will not just live my life. I will not just spend my life. I will invest my life. You see, the truth is we have to make sure that We're living and then we're dying for something that's meaningful. The famous evangelist D.L. Moody said, Let God have your life. He can do more with it than you can. Bishop Stephen Charles Neal wrote, Life is filled with meaning as soon as Jesus Christ comes into it. You see, for the person who knows and loves and believes that Jesus is the Lord, if a man dies, shall he live again? It's not a hard question. David McKenna writes, quote, Perhaps, like a man crawling in the desert with sand in his throat, Job sees the mirage of a green oasis fed by an overflowing spring of water. Something prompts him to foresee life beyond the grave in the character of God. We who have the promise of Christ... I am the resurrection and the life in John 11:25 still find it hard to accept death at a graveside he is exactly right when you're a christian and when you bury someone that you love and you watch them being lowered into the dirt, when you watch their ashes being spread on the mountain or in the ocean, and you're asking yourself this question of whether or not people live again, there's, there's absolutely no way of knowing apart from the revelation that's been given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why you can stand at every single grave and say, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life, and he that believes in me, yet shall he live. He answers the question that Job asks. He answers the question that the Hindu wants to know, and the Buddhist wants to know, and the Muslim wants to know, and the philosophical, naturalist, atheist, everybody wants to know the truth about that question. In verse 15, look what he says. You shall call and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands. Do you understand what he's saying? When he says you shall call, the implication is, remember, he's dead. How can a dead person hear the voice of God and then respond to God? Job says you will call and I will answer you. The answer, again, is found in John chapter 6. Where Jesus answers Job's question. Actually, it's in in John chapter 5. In verse 28, he says, do not marvel at this. In John chapter 5, verse 28, he says, do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming. The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good. To the resurrection of life and to those who have done evil, to the resurrection of condemnation. Job imagines a world in which God calls out to him and he's able to answer him. And look what else it says. You shall desire the work of your hands. In what way? You're not mad at me. You're not silent with me. You're not cross with me. You want me because you created me. Look, you shall desire the work of your hands. If a resurrection is true, if a resurrection is true, God could call Job. Job could answer. And the fact that God calls and the fact that Job implies that he can answer, all of this stuff implies consciousness, awareness, communication. The fact that Job could say, you shall desire the work of your hands implies emotion, compassion, love. Job acknowledges that a resurrected Job, not a broken Job, not an empty Job, not a pus-covered Ash heap, pot shard scratching Job. But he imagines a life where he's been been given a resurrected body that's fit and appropriate for eternity. In verse 16 he says, for now you number my steps. But do not watch over my sin. In what sense? Remember what he said earlier? I feel like you're tracking me like an animal. I feel like a spy who's following an enemy. But he says, now, for now you number my steps, but do not watch over my sin. One Bible commentator made the comment that God no longer counts his steps like a hunter tracking prey or a spy following a lead, but like a father watching a beloved child take precious steps. And that's the idea. And look what it says. But do not watch over my sin. In the resurrected state. In the life that's to come. In the, in the life that he's imagining. Job's sins are overlooked. When you're lying in bed. And you're thinking about the life to come. And you're thinking about heaven. Heaven. You're thinking about the eternal state. You're thinking about what it is like to have a relationship with God in all of eternity. Do you imagine yourself pure? Accepted? That's exactly what Job is doing. He's imagining a future where he's no longer burdened. By what it means to be a temporal person. And look what it says in verse 17 My transgression is sealed up in a bag, and you cover my iniquity. What in the world does that mean? You look at the passage My transgression is sealed up in a bag. What does that mean? What does it mean, my transgression is sealed up in a bag? The idea is to take the trash and you put it in a bag and you seal it, and you take it to the dump. What's interesting in verse 17, when it says, my transgression is sealed up in a bag, and you cover my iniquity, the word translated cover is a word that's earlier translated in chapter 13, verse 4, But you forgers of lies, that word forge is the same word. It's also translated smear, it's also translated cover. One Bible writer translates it, whiten. Like you would take something where all of the paint has fallen off and you see the holes and the cracks and 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 the wear and the tear and you take a nice coat of paint and you cover it. As a matter of fact, several versions use the term and you coat over. The implication being whatever wrong I've committed, whatever iniquities that I've been found with, whatever discrepancies, difficulties, failures, it's like a fresh coat of paint. Job anticipates the obliteration of his sins on the day of renewal. I mean, what good would it be to have a new life and survive death and go into eternity? But you have to live with the same agony. You have to live with the same sin. You have to live with the same failure. You have to live with the same brokenness. And guess what? That's exactly what reincarnation invites you to believe. Oh, you can come back. What are you going to come back as? Well, it's going to be a little bit better than it was before. You go from not to fly From fly to fish, from fish to cat, and cat to dog, and dog to cow. But there's always the limitations, there's always the brokenness, there's always the disease, there's always the suffering, there's always the karma. And Job envisions a resurrection and a future. everything that he's done is gone Paul writes in Romans chapter 4 verse 8 blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin to impute remember is the act of one person adding or Subtracting, taking, or giving something good or something bad from one account to another account. There are three kinds of imputation in the Bible. The imputation of Adam's sin on the human race in 1 Corinthians 15.22. In Adam we all die. The imputation of the human's race on Jesus. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace is upon him. And by his stripes we're healed, Isaiah 53, 5. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities, Isaiah 53, 11. The imputation of God's righteousness upon the believing sinner. It says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. But what things were gained to me, Paul writes, these I count count as loss for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, but that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteous, which is uh, righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus, in the righteousness which is of God by faith. If there is a life beyond the grave, will it be filled with joy? Will it be filled with happiness? In imputation, the first is involuntary. Remember, nobody wants to be an Adam voluntarily. You don't, you don't cry. Your first cry as a baby is, I've been robbed. Put me back. It doesn't work that way. No one wants to be born a sinner. But Paul argues, even though it seems like a raw deal that everyone dies in Adam, he argues in the book of Romans, it's such a sweet deal that everyone can live in Christ. If one person could create the mechanism whereby all people are sinners and all people die. Look at the bright side. That means that one person can be the savior. And he can be the singular solution to the problem of sin. If you will trust him. And so Jesus says. In John 10.10, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And can you imagine, can you imagine, can you imagine if if Jesus whispered in Job's ear, John 11.25... I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. This remains the singular solution, the everlasting answer to the question, if a man dies, will he live again? The right answer will always be, the answer is found in Jesus, in the life of Jesus, in the death of Jesus, in the resurrection of Jesus. It means so much, but it must mean the answer to that question is yes, yes, and yes again. In First John chapter four, verse nine, it says, "In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him." In Revelation one eighteen, it says, "I am He that lives." and I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of hell and death. If you're ever wondering, if anyone ever looks at you, if anyone glances at you, if you see someone crying and weeping as they're burying their mother, their father, their grandfather, if you see them burying their child and they're covered with tears and they're wondering whether or not they'll ever see their loved one again, you get to say, I'm here to tell you something. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life and he that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. That's the hope. Pause for a moment. I want you to think about what Job is saying. Job is at least at this point saying, look, I'm willing to endure suffering. I'm willing to endure the grave. I'm willing to even stay in that grave if it means that God will call me from that grave. If he will speak to me, I will answer him. If I can find him, if I can reveal my transgressions or he can reveal them to me. Again, McKenna writes, quote, true faith is always more practical than a visionary. Job doesn't yearn for a Shangri-La existence in eternal life. Rather, he envisions conversations with God in verse 15. A mutual relationship between the creator and the created being in verse 15. A time when the veil of mystery over God's purpose will be lifted in verse 17. And at the end of his life, the very famous missionary and, and evangelist East Stanley Jones anticipated his appearance before the presence of God by asking the Lord... For 24 hours to greet his friends he said quote I shall go to him and say haven't you a world somewhere which has fallen people who have need of an evangelist like me please send me there for I know no heaven beyond preaching the gospel to people. In other words E. Stanley Jones is envisioning a world in which he gets to do something that he loves for the person that he loves. McKenna writes, he and Job share the same functional faith for a heaven of stimulating conversation, growing relationships, unfolding revelation, a satisfying work. How different is that from a person who goes, yeah, he's gone to that great big ballpark in the sky where you play in the major leagues forever and ever. He's in that great NBA shooting hoops. He's in heaven's band singing songs. But what if heaven isn't just a place where you are in a band or play ball or visit friends? What if heaven is like what Job imagines? A God who brings you back to life. Who forgives all of your sins. Where you get to ask the questions that you've always wanted to know about. And get the answer that you need. But then there's a crash. The crash comes in verse 18. and what I'm calling the melancholy of doubt. Look what he says in verse 18. But as a mountain falls and crumbles away. And as a rock is moved from its place. As water wears away stones. as And as torrents wash away the soil of the earth. So you destroy the hope of man. Listen to what he's saying. He's, he's Describing the cycles of earth movement, of erosion in nature. And he's using that as an illustration to describe the hopes of man. Job is being, How can I hold out hope? But as a mountain falls and crumbles away, hey, I see a mountain, the wind blows, the water flows, the torrents wash the soil. He looks at the evidence of the material world. He sees the world in which he's living. And he understands the second law of thermodynamics. The law of entropy. Everything is moving from order to chaos. Mountains rise. Mountains fall. Rivers flow. They carry the sediment into the gulf. The earth is wasting away. He says, so you destroy the hope of man. What? What, Job? Remember what's happened? Job has lost his family. Job has lost his wealth. Job has lost his health. Now, the most devastating thing that you could possibly lose, that you could ever lose, is at risk. Do you know it's being assaulted? His hope. You should read that and you should ask the question. Has Job lost hope? Has he given up hope? Remember what he's already said in verses 7 through 12. A tree has more hope than I do. He says in verse 20, you prevail forever against him and he passes on. In other words, God, you will always have your way no matter what human beings say and do because people will live and people will die. They will come and they will go. You change his countenance and send him away. In what way? You can make a smile, a frown, you can make a frown, a smile, you can make joy turn to disaster. It's sort of like the national championship. I don't know if any of you saw Auburn playing Florida State. And in the last few moments of the game, you saw one side go from absolute dismal depression to elation to depression to elation to depression. Because that's the way human beings are. You're happy when things are going your way and you're sad when they're not. And he says in verse 21... His sons come to honor, and he does not know it. Do you understand what verse 21 is saying? Read it again. His sons come to honor. Whose sons? I'm going to suggest to you that now Job isn't just talking in the impersonal third person, he's talking about his sons. His sons come to honor, and he does not know it. They are brought low. And he does not perceive it. You know what he's describing? A father. Who never gets to see his children grow up. Do you understand that? The mother, the father, the brother, the sister, the grandmother, the grandfather who is mourning and thinking and and considering the circumstances of life. And they begin to understand a daughter or a son that will never graduate from school, will never go to college, will never be married, will never get their first job, their first mortgage, their first credit card bill, wait... That's not the way it's supposed to be going. In in the ideal world in which you imagine your child growing up. We envision a world of our children growing up where their dreams come true. In verse 22 he says, But his flesh will be in pain over it. And his soul will mourn over it. Job wonders whether his body simply turns to dust. And his soul goes to a place of sadness. This isn't the voice of hope. But it ends the first round of the debate between Job and his friends. Remember, Job is on the ash heap. The first round ends with Job hurt. Alone, hope slipping away. Job hasn't been beaten down by the arguments or the accusations, but by something way more painful, way more difficult to deal with, way more oppressive. He's alone. And his hope is slipping away. The reason why this becomes important to you is because you're going to meet someone, or you might even be someone, where you feel like you're all alone and hope is slipping away. The friends of Job believe that he's suffering because of secret sin. Job acknowledges some of their observations, but he rejects their conclusions. Remember what Job wants? Please show me where I went wrong. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, Elihu, they're not done with Job. They still have a few more words that they're going to speak. I want to remind you that the chapter doesn't end on a high note. There's doubt. But thank God, thank God, the book of Job isn't over. You see, there's going to be chapter 15, and as you turn the pages, and as you read chapter 19, and chapter 22, and chapter 38, the Lord is going to speak. The Lord is going to answer. You see, Job is going to continue into chapter 39 and chapter 40, and then the book of Job is going to come to an end. And then the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is going to be a progressive unfolding of the revelation of the nature and the character of God until you fast forward into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the revelation of Jesus and the life of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And hope is going to awaken. And life is going to be amazing. Remember what Job has done. He's appealed for sympathy. Life is short. A warfare in chapter 7. Which really translates in appointed time. He, he refers to life as short. Slavery. A weaver's shuttle. The wind. A cloud. A swift messenger. Evaporating water. Dry gulch. He wants to speak to God about his integrity. He wants to appeal in faith to God. And he wants to die. But before he dies, he'd really like to know the answer. Is there something past death? You see, the truth is, death isn't life's final word. Death, as John Bunyan said, is a passage out of a prison into a palace. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, His grace has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life And immortality through the gospel. You see, sometimes when people are depressed. And sometimes when people are alone. And sometimes when people are hurt. And sometimes when it looks like hope is going away. That's the best time for the gospel. Don't you wish you were there right now? That you could go, Job, Job. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. He is going to live the life that we could never live. He's going to die on the cross for our sin. He's going to rise from the dead. He's going to answer all of your questions. So I thought I'd let you know. But believe it or not, you might come across someone in the not-too-distant future who's never heard the truth. All they know about is their pain. And all they know about is their suffering. And all they know about is their questions. And they want hope. But their hope is slipping away. And it could very well be that you become the person who says exactly the right word at exactly the right time so that life will awaken and hope will grow. Oh, but we're done with this chapter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we Consider these words. Lord, we understand that sometimes we have to look at the whole Bible to understand the answer to some questions. And sometimes there are questions that are asked that we're unprepared to answer. Lord, we pray that for those questions that we're unprepared to answer, that we would learn the answer. And if there is no answer, then in humility and And integrity, we would just simply confess, I don't know. But Lord, the answer to the question about life after death has been forever answered in a risen Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Isn't that interesting? Let's stand.